Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. This is episode 140 with Ada Karamanian, who is a theater administrator, casting director, and overall incredible human being. She has the distinction of casting all of the roles in Shakespeare's canon at once for the Play On Project. We talk about her activism and work amplifying voices in the transgender and gender expansive community. And like with all complex conversations, it goes a bit longer than perhaps your average podcast. And there are some blips in the audio, but my producer and I felt it was essential to preserve the entire integrity of the interview. So we thank you for your patience as you weather those minor blips in the audio. The Theatrical Mustang podcast features interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers across the country. This reboot is distributed by American Theater Magazine. Episodes 1 through 138 are archived at theatricalmustang.podbean.com. And now sit back and enjoy episode 140 with Ada Karamanian. Ada Karamanian, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Woodsick. Thanks for having me. We were, uh, we had a lot of laughs and and conversation before this sort of front-facing conversation (laughs) of a podcast is happening. And we talked about how the last time we spoke on a podcast, it was a little over six years ago. It was December of 2015. It was right a couple months before I came out as non-binary. And I just want to dig back into that conversation about your dramaturgy about that moment in time and what was about to come was kind of really fantastic. So do you mind repeating yourself a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. One thing too that I, I is dawning on me is if it was the year 2015. I remember that day very vividly um, as you were describing the like entering the elevator and unlocking it and going into the rehearsal room <laughs> at ACT Theater to record it. Like it all is coming back to me so plainly. But that was the 10th year as a out as a trans as a trans woman, um, 2015. So sometimes I like anniversaries. So um, <laughs> something I'm just thinking about now. When we were talking earlier, I was mentioning how it's unique that that was on the eve of what is, I think, in some circles called the trans tipping point. And we were six months away from Caitlyn Jenner sort of making a a splash, for lack of a better term, in the media. It was right around the time that Laverne Cox was blowing up. She was on the cover of Time magazine and was on Orange is the New Black, and there were all these faces that were starting to appear and move the conversation forward. And we were talking about theater and how we existed in it as queer people, as a trans person. And it also just happened to be right at the tipping point for us and our own selves, our identities and our careers. And where we've been and in the past six years is just, it's just interesting to reflect back on. So yeah, that's what we were, that's what we were talking about. 
I'm, I'm back at act theater. So full circle. <laughs> well, let's talk about, I mean, full I think circle. that you are nationally known as a casting director and that's how I think of you front and center. Um, and we are going to get into some of the uh, projects that you have brought to life in a little bit, but talk about your return to ACT Theater in Seattle and what your role is now. ACT was the first theater company to ever, or really, I guess, the first institution of of any sort. No, just theater company. I'm sorry. It was the first theater company that hired me on in a full-time capacity um, for more than just like a contract. And I was trying to put my head down and just do my work and and do it well. I had a moment where my boss at the time had asked me sort of what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I didn't know how to respond to that. And I told her, you know, give give me some time. Let me look around and think about that. Um, I also didn't know if she was, if this was like a test for me to say, like, I want to be you. You know what I mean? Like, I want to do what you do. So like, or was she actually asking like me to to really be sincere and, and think about it? And I was happy to to go down the path that it was the latter. And so I really did. And nobody had ever really asked me that before, right? Like I just thought I was lucky to like work anywhere. Um, it would take me such a long time to find semblance of stability in my life. And so to like actually think about it and like dream big I guess again was I was moved by that I suppose and even thinking about it in retrospect I'm like still I still go back to that moment and I talk about it a lot that's where I sort of leaned into the idea that I could work as a casting director or casting professional and it just took off from there but act theater has always had a very special place in my heart and in my mind and that stems from even before I worked there full-time and so when I made the decision after I moved to New York in 2016, I was thinking about what my future would look like. And I had already reached the conclusion that Seattle really was ultimately the place that was right for me to live in. The Pacific Northwest in general, I should say, made the most sense for me and my temperament and what I need to like have a balance in my own, my personal life and my emotional health, my mental health. Um, New York is a wonderful, wonderful city. And I recommend anyone who's interested to go give it a shot and learn as much as you can and meet as many people as you can and enjoy yourself. And and if you love it, stay. And if you don't, you know, it's always going to be there. And that was my own experience. And, and I thought, if I go back to Seattle, I know myself well enough to know that I'm going to want to continue working in the theater industry. It'll be challenging to do so as a freelancer, at least as a, ca- a casting professional freelancer, and that if I were to return to an institution, it makes sense to go back to act, or at least like if the right opportunity presented itself to. So I was pretty vocal with folks there, like that I was interested and that I would be, if the right opportunity presented itself, I would be interested in throwing my hat back in the ring. And then sort of the perfect timing last year, an opportunity did as a way to sort of get myself back in the thick of it. And so I went for it and I was I'm very honored and happy that they thought it was a good idea too. So I started back up in November. So your official title is Production and Artistic office manager what what does your day-to-day look like is it just something <laughs> a little bit different every day 
Kind of, yeah, actually. It's very project-oriented. So I am juggling two worlds between production and artistic, as is indicative in my job title. It's sort of this, I'm going to use job titles that are frequently found in arts administration and performance arts administration, like a company manager. There's a, a lot of that kind of work that you would find a company manager doing that I do. So I'm dealing with a lot of contracts. I'm dealing with a lot of payroll timesheets. I'm really sort of going through a crash course on union rules and how to make sure that people are paid what they're supposed to be paid based on the agreements that they sign, uh, communications with the unions, then dispatch and all that sort of fun stuff. The job is was one thing when it started and because of the nature of how the industry and act by association is continually shifting with the changes in the pandemic, my job is sort of shifting and and being refocused all the time as a result of that. But the foundational things that I do are sort of a hybrid of office manager. So there's a lot of just like clerical work that I do and company manager. I also, there's work in as far as artist relations that I am juggling. So I'm sort of managing this group at Act Theater called The Core Company, which are the carefully selected group of 20 affiliate artists. It started back in 2016 and for a series of seasons thereafter, the artistic director of ACT Theatre, John Langs, had brought on a group of artists to work for the current season at the time, on stage and off stage and in various sort of like artistic ambassador roles slash actors. And then in one case, he brought on Yusuf Elgundi, who's a playwright, mm. um, and worked on a play of his. And a lot of people in it are exploring other things like directing and playwriting. A lot of people kind of came in as actor number one and now are sort of branching off and exploring, becoming more multifaceted and multidisciplinary. And so anyway, that is a big part of what I do too, is sort of the logistics and managing of the projects that they're involved in, the various meetings that we have. There are several committees that have formed, like a curation committee. There is an artistic uh, ethics committee group of folks that formed from the core company. So I'm reading scripts a lot as well and participating in the curation process for the upcoming season. That's been part of my work. I feel like I could prattle on and on and as needed etc 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 just a very silly question to make me smile have you enjoyed any any baked goods uh made by nick farwell recently no um but i have enjoyed some bitters and and that is not because nick farwell has decided not to make uh, anything and share it it is that <laughs> Uh, it is a strictly COVID-related um, matter uh, where things like like making baked goods, like for birthdays, we don't like get a cake for everyone like we normally would. We're being so cautious and thoughtful about it um, that that was one of the things that when I first started had already been nixed. So I have not yet, that's the operative word, yet. Um, and I look forward to the day that I will. But he was so lovely. He makes bitters. He makes lots of things, but he makes bitters. And for my birthday, he gave me a little bottle of um, homemade bitters that I'm going to mix with some fizzy water and enjoy one of these days. I love it. I miss Seattle. Come back. Okay. <laughs> Great. I will at least visit. 
I want to talk about this, the space between, right? These two podcasts and mm-hmm. you have just been incredibly prolific in all that you've done. Can we start with Play On? We were talking about that a little bit, casting the witches in, I, I guess my house is not a theater, so I can save Macbeth. And that has intersections with the piece on Drag Race alums that I wrote for American Theater. I got to talk to Peppermint for just a short bit of our interview um, about playing one of the witches. So I think that you have the distinction of being the first, if not the only casting director to cast all of Shakespeare's plays at once. I I was having a hard time fact checking that, but can you talk about how that project came to you and how you went about that massive artistic achievement? It's sort of bewildering to me to think of it like that. Like I refuse to believe that there was in the past 500 years, somebody who sat down and was like, we're going to do all these plays in the course of 35 days. And I'm going to cast every single one of them in the course of two and a half months. But, <laughs> but I don't know, right? Like I know there was, I know that the public did a major festival of the entire canon, I think in the late eighties, but I don't know what the casting details were that I think Jordan Thaler, who is still there to this day, was there and present during that. But I don't, I have no idea, right? Most people, when I tell them or they read or see my resume or something like that, and that's on there, their eyes cross. Um, and yeah. so, which you know, I, I just have to say I had a tremendous team of folks that I was working with with Play On um, and without the help of the producers and the, the creative teams as well and their their trust and their input and their insight, it just it would have completely been unmanageable. It's still a project that I'm a part of in some capacity with the podcast series. Like you just mentioned Peppermint, who was a part of the first podcast of uh, Macbeth that we did. And that's in association with ne- Next Chapter Podcast. And I've been casting those with wonderful casting director, Karen Castle. And she's just exquisite. And when I cast the festival, which was in collaboration with Oregon Shakespeare Festival, where the project first sort of got its roots and was a major part in the early readings out loud throughout the translation process of these plays, they were part of this festival as well as Classic Stage Company in New York. And that's where the readings were held, the public readings were held. So I was brought on by recommendation of one of my dear friends and the first casting professional that I met when I moved to New York. Her name is Rebecca Feldman. She was a casting associate at the Public Theater for about eight years. And she's just a wonderful human. And she really helped me navigate some early moments in my career out there and forming my career out there. And then we had the great pleasure of working together on a number of projects with Baltimore Center Stage and Stephanie Ibarra's first season there, um, which was also a joy. But anyway, she had recommended me for this project and I was just out of a fellowship for an off-Broadway theater company and was trying to figure out how I was going to make something of myself right and in that fall following the fellowship so this is a couple months after the fellowship ended that fall a series of things started to kind of like land and this project this behemoth of a project was introduced to me as like like hey you want to do this they're going to come to you and, and ask you and I could not comprehend again right my eyes probably crossed too I could not comprehend what I was like getting right. myself in 
but I thought about it and I suppose in retrospect it was like a sink or swim was how I felt like I thought if I'm going to be a casting professional this is probably one of the most challenging things that's ever going to be asked of me that I can think of so sure (laughs) and if I if I fall on my face then I'll know how to readjust moving forward but if I can pull it off then that's going to mean something too. And I, you know, I, I kind of went into it with the sort of spirit of, I don't know, uh, what am I trying to say? I was up for the challenge. I felt really up for it and really confident that I was in a good, safe space to, to do this and to do it with confidence and see what happened. And I was very transparent with them too. I went into the first conversation before I signed a contract and it was like, I just finished a fellowship. You know what I mean? Like you're asking me to do this, this giant, gigantic thing in a city full of casting professionals who have been here for decades who know this city inside and out i just finished a fellowship and they were totally (laughs) totally down you know my philosophy around casting and my outlook and my interest in highlighting the communities that i was i am passionate about fighting for opportunities for like it was all aligned and here we are now several years later and it was a success so there's some thoughts on it for you. <laughs> I can, I'm happy to talk more <laughs> or to go into details. I, yeah. And I think, I mean, we're going to get to the piece that you wrote for American theater in, in a bit here, but one of the things that struck me from our previous conversation in the podcast, like sometimes there's a hesitancy, like there's a what if in casting like this, we want to bring the sense of possibility, like what if we did this? And then sometimes more cautious minds or timid minds prevail in that space. But the fact that you were able to come in as an activist and just an all around, you're such a badass and you're so, I don't know anyone who knows more. You, you are so well-versed in everything theatrical. Like I just, you are one of my heroes. Like I look up to you. And so to be able to like go in and be like, these are my values. This is how I'm going to go about casting this huge thing. I think that's brilliant because you sort of are able to, you were able to go full force with the what if. So can you talk a little bit about the trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary actors that you were able to bring into the project? Absolutely. It was essential for me. We're dealing with text that has existed for 500 years. And to this day, it is still a challenge (laughs) for these plays to be produced through a casting process where the conversation around intentionality is key and the exploration of how these individuals can exist on stage, not governed by white bodies and voices is still so hard to to see materialized and that's like not cool it's not not cool yeah like it's obnoxious I don't know how else to put it like I'm just I'm at a point now where it's like my my (laughs) my patience runneth over with a lot of this stuff like that's where I'm at now in 2022 where it's like I am so beyond let's like really like hash out why trans people should play trans characters like they just they just fucking could okay (laughs) (laughs) shut up and do it that's why because I I said so so okay (laughs) that's right Matt Um, anyway I (laughs) and so there's no excuse that transgender non-conforming and non-binary people should not be involved in a festival where we're casting 150 goddamn people that's why (laughs) so that's one um (laughs) it's because duh and yes and so I did and so (laughs) 
that was it. And so I said, here are all these badass actors say yes to giving them a contract. And they said, yes. <laughs> so, and, and I, I, their talents speak for themselves. Right. I don't have to sell right. it. You know what I mean? I don't have to say anything beyond like, yes, this is a competent, solid actor who's going to play Puck for the 10 billionth time, right? Like, so <laughs> I don't... I don't, that might be sloppy. Like, I, I don't think I'm going to win any favors with any artistic directors listening who want to have the nuanced conversation. But I'm at the point now where, like, it just needs to be done. Um, I, just, I just appreciate that so much because I think that in what you just said, you're able to articulate something that there is this impatience and it goes beyond impatience with me sometimes there's a frustration, there's an anger, there's a mistrust sometimes of, of theatrical institutions as a whole that I think sometimes that pure anger or frustration or impatience gets contained a lot to, for lack of a better word, affinity spaces for TGNC performers and, and theater artists because there's that fear of like, oh, I don't want to step out of line too much. Yes, like there is rage within me about transphobia in, in this industry or, or being told to be patient or being told I need to have more experience. And so I just think it's a beautiful thing that you were able to share that. I'm the manager of this project. I'm casting it. I said so. These are the people. We're doing it great. Like there's such simplicity in that. And I just really appreciate <laughs> you laying it out like that. I, I'll say I I was, I don't want to say lucky, but I'm happy that I work, was working with people who did not Okay, there was trust, right? And right. with the creative team, with the producers, this has not always been the case um, on other projects that I've worked on. Um, and so for Play On, we all lucked out. And the biggest recipient, the one who really lucked out was the audience, frankly, and the creative mm. teams who got to work with these these killer folks and, and should again. And these people need to be working more often than they do. And the reasons why they're not are because the opportunities are not lining themselves up in the way that they should and, and they need to. And that's just sort of it, period. I feel like in a lot of things, talk about the trans tipping point, you know, TGNC tipping point, right? That we've experienced since the last time we talked. There is this thing that I wrestle with and that is that urgency, right? Like, mm. and then also stopping and going, some people will get there. It'll take people time. You know what I don't have in my life is 300 years to wait around for you all to get it. I maybe have 70 and I'm already halfway through that. And so if it's not going to happen, then I'm going to go do something else. That's where I'm at in my life. I love what I do and I love the people that I work with and I want to continue being an advocate for my community. And I'm also trans. I also deal with crippling dysphoria. That's probably not, I'm going to catch myself. I just used a word that I don't know if I should, it's really responsible for me to use. So forgive me. I deal with incredible dysphoria. It is so intense in everything I do and everywhere I go, including in these conversations mm. and so there's something I feel like that's almost um it's touching and then at the same time I can't help but also feel like it's it's almost sad when you see images of like 
you know, when, when the marriage equality passed and the newspapers were plastered with these images of people who, of, of same-sex couples who have been together since 1940 and they're like in their 90s and they're finally able to get married. And it's like, there's something about that where I'm like, is that, this is for them. This moment should be about them. But I feel like that is also there so other people can go, oh, look at them. They can finally get married. Like, oh, that's good. Look what we did. We like gay people. But you know what? 1940, they should have been fucking able to get married. You know, like they shouldn't have waited around until they were 90 years old to get married, right? Like, my God, like, what do you think happened when they went home? They had to sit there and think about and reflect on. That might be a little like dark, but like, hopefully they were really happy. (laughs) We're able to just like live in joy forever. But there probably also was some pain wrapped up in that. Anytime they looked back on what they had to go through for decades to get there. And I'm just at the point with my community where it's like the statistics are not that great when it comes to mental health and like how we what we do and we're by ourselves like especially for young people and I was a young person and I went through it too I'm a survivor yo that's what I'll say on that and it's not cute and so like just let us have it (laughs) that's what I'll say and the people were great like that's what I can say about the actors the TGNC actors who were in play on they were great they were wonderful. They were great to work with. I want them to continue doing it. Seeing multiple TGNC folks on stage at the same time was moving. There's no way, two ways about it. I was very touched by that to the point where it still kind of gives me goosebumps, you know, to think about. But you know what's really cool is that I just saw a play at Seattle Rap, Teenage Dick. And there were like four non-binary folk in the cast on stage and in, in, in understudies. And there's not a single role in that play that's necessarily written for somebody who's trans or non-binary. And I thought, how cool. There's only like eight actors in this show total, including the understudies, and half of them are non-binary on, at, on the main stage of the Seattle Repertory Theater. My mind just was blown by that. Like, you know what? It just was so stinking cool. So more, please. <laughs> More, please. Yes. The title of your memoir. (laughs) It was a rant if I've ever had one. No, Um. and I think it's the well-deserved rant. I think what I love about this, I think this transitions well into talking about trans lab, because I think there's, in terms of, you know, what I see in the industry and the landscape, yes, more, please. More needs to be done, like what happened with Play On and imbuing you with that power, right? You just, you know, prong one is bringing more TGNC artists into more, for lack of a better word, traditional classical theater spaces. Another part of it is creating affinity spaces where they can, that amplifies the great work they're already doing that maybe doesn't necessarily have the parameters or limits of what classical or traditional theater spaces have. And so can you talk about your work with TransLab and how that came to be and and just maybe some of your highlights from, from uh, your time on that project? I can. My introduction to TransLab was an invitation from MJ Kaufman and Kit Yan to to the co-founders of it. Um, They co-founded it with Cece Suazo. And the two of them had reached out and asked me if I was interested in joining their first year cohort. They were already in the midst of meetings. Um, They had had a couple already and they had invited me to come in as a guest speaker and talk about my experience um, as a casting professional. And I was in the middle of my fellowship 
and having a tough time in my fellowship. And so then to go and talk to other TGNC folks and try to be like, yeah, here's all this great stuff happening when at the time I, my mind was cloudy. Mm. Like, I didn't know if I wanted to keep doing this anymore. I felt like, oh God, I have to like put on this face. It's like, keep it up. The industry is great and totally ready for you. And the whole time I was in that meeting, I was scared and I was scared about saying the wrong thing. I was like, oh God, I'm going to say something. And these people are going to be like, why is she representing us? You know what I mean? Like uh, it was terrifying. And this is another thing that when I moved to New York in November, 2016, I didn't have many if any close friends who were also trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming. Well, I take that back. Transitioning in the sense that I was medically transitioning, perhaps, I guess is one way of putting it. And so I did have non-binary friends. I believe you were one of them. I'm trying to remember the timeline, if you'll indulge me for a second. Absolutely. Of when you came out to me. And I think it was by the point I moved to New York. Yes, it totally was. What am I talking about? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm like it all just like hit me like a ton of bricks. Duh. Okay, moving on. <laughs> sorry, what's it? Oh, all <laughs> is brain. well, my dear. All is well. So once friend <laughs> and going into this community of, of folks. And one of the things I had never really realized that I had done was shied away from having connections with other TGNC folks. I had never really clocked how much energy I put toward assimilation and then moving to New York and wanting community so bad and having the first community that really opened itself up to me be folks like me. I didn't know how to navigate that. And then on top of it, I'm dealing with this pressure that there are no other, at the time, nobody seemed to be aware of any other casting professional in the city of New York who identified as trans or non-binary, gender non-conforming, that very quickly changed. Thank goodness. There were others throughout the country um, who were working, and then some of them moved to New York, like, like my dear friend Charlie. And there was just this intense pressure on my shoulders. So anyway, shortly thereafter, they were like, hey, we need a new cohort. I mean, we need a new facilitator for the cohort for the second half of the year. Would you like to be that facilitator? And I almost instantly knew I was going to say yes. I was like, what a cool opportunity. Like, what a great, I just finished a fellowship program. I know what I liked about it and I know what I didn't like about it and would do differently for myself as the as the fellow and also what I would have hoped my um, instructors would have done differently. And so I feel like this is a as good of an opportunity as any to sort of try to um, make peace with that experience and bring about as much of a positive experience for others. And one of the first things that I caught on to was that almost every meeting, especially with the second year cohort, almost every meeting there was some mention by somebody in the room, sometimes even me, we'd just have a collective moment where we sighed or we let out a deep breath and just acknowledged the room and this somewhat rare opportunity to not be the only one or one of two who understands in some capacity what it's like to walk through life as we do, but to have the entire room be people. It just is nothing like, it's nothing else like that. I mean, I'm sort of experiencing that right now, right? Like I don't talk this comfortably with other people, 
that is unique and special and the whole experience on top of it there's a goal right like we're not just there to be like phew also there's this very there's this other thing that we're doing that is we're pulling from our own experiences that have been created by these institutions like the public theater or wp were two companies that have supported trans lab by giving us space and access to printing materials access to rehearsal rooms when we did presentations like WP and the public were immensely helpful throughout this process. And then later Rattlestick was also tremendously helpful partnering with us and providing us space and resources as well. And our program was devised from pre-existing programs that exist for playwrights and directors who are developing work, um, including the company that I was a fellow at has an apprenticeship, a fellowship program for playwrights and directors. So that was interesting in some ways. We have this system that was created by people, sort of almost like everything we walk through, right? Almost everything we walk through. It's a system that was created by and for people who don't necessarily have any sort of understanding of what it's like to be us. And now we are sort of taking that and figuring out how do we make that our own. And um, that second year in particular, the first year cohort was very special. And by the time I got there, they were, you know, all charged up and revved to go and getting ready for a showcase. I, you know, I didn't want to step on toes with that one. So I was a little bit, you know, delicate to how I navigated the relationships there. I try not to insert myself as much in the, the feedback sessions when we would read pages and things like that. The second year cohort was especially was very, very special um, because I was present from the very beginning and reading all the applications. The fact that we had as many people from across the country apply to be part of the fellowship. That's the thing when artistic directors say, well, where are the trans playwrights? It's like, do your job do your job or talk to your literary director if you have one. I don't know why you're in a position of leadership if you literally don't know how to look for these things. So, and so here are these, you know, all these applications and having the joy to read all of these scripts and talk to all these people is really special. And then to watch them go through the year that they went through. And what I loved about it too is that like, you run the full gamut, right? You see these like flickers of, brilliance of their writing and then sometimes they come in with a turd and we all acknowledge that it's part of the process right and that's that's what it's there for and you're like all right this is working and then they come back in with something else it's just exquisite you know and to watch the process work in the way that it's supposed to was really special and so that was fun and connecting with these really great people who I try to keep a pulse on what they're doing to this day and starting to slowly catch up because the pandemic of course put a wedge in such things um right. so now um in the capacity that I work in at act I am fully taking advantage of the fact that I too should be doing that research again and so I am <laughs> I love you so much I'm a bit perhaps a bit more familiar with you than I would be with many podcast guests so enjoy, listeners. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the heightened banter. It's just, yeah, the idea of bringing <laughs> bringing brilliant pages in, and as well as bringing in turds. Like, I just thank you for saying that because there's also, I think, the pressure on TGNC theater artists to be like extraordinary all the time, superhuman. It's like no, like sometimes we could just bring some bad pages into you know workshop. We are just as multifaceted as everyone else. And sometimes we have real boring days. So there. Uh. Yeah, right. Like this is the, this is some real like truth talk in here. I look back 
I'm going to share something with you that I don't, it's hard for me to like articulate, has been hard for me to articulate in settings outside of like, other than like really like intense personal conversations with very close friends. But I think it's important to talk about here as we're discussing these things and for people to know just generally on that subject. I, I look back at my work, my casting work for the past couple years, and it's hard for me sometimes to think about it. I appreciate so much the people that I know who have had positive experiences working with me or like the the end result or, you know, look up to me or, or whatever that might be, right? I look at, and it could just be that I have a tendency to be very critical of myself, but I just wish I had been in a better headspace went throughout those years. I think part of it, the pressure just really was so intense. It was so grating. And at the end there, there's something really challenging. I might have even mentioned this in my piece with American Theatre Magazine. There was something so kind of unique about the timing of the lockdown at the, at the start of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people who work in the arts in any capacity, we've kind of quietly like confided in one another, like, yeah, me too, right? Was that there was this moment to just like completely be untethered from everything and just focus on ourselves. And I needed that break because I had just had a moment where I had to like stop doing a project because I just couldn't. I just could not do a good job anymore. Like everything I was presenting was a turd. I just kept turning in a turd after a turd after a turd and and it just wasn't good. And that's not how I want to present myself. That's not my best work. And not that I'm always like, it has to be my best work, but it wasn't even like passably good work. And I felt so much shame because of mm. that. And I was like, what are you doing? You will never work again. And it's not right. even my, it, it is at that point, a, something inside of myself that's like tormenting myself and telling myself this crippling, yeah, use that word again, this intense anxiety that I feel. But it also, this is stuff that I went through in my fellowship. I feel icky talking sometimes about my fellowship because it's, I feel like I've kvetched about it so much. But like, that's real. You know what I mean? That's real. Like, oh, no, I don't know when I'm never going to get over that. I entered my casting career where most people go from a fellowship to like an assistant role. A lot of casting people go from a fellowship to another fellowship or another internship because it's real hard to break through. And right. so I went from a fellowship to one contract where I was an associate on a project that was fully in charge of casting one character that was trans. So like casting director on one role, casting associate on the rest of the cast, I guess it's the best way of breaking that down. And then casting Shakespeare's entire canon. I didn't have that trajectory that is considered typical for casting folk. And then from there on, I was just always, it was mostly casting director on occasion, casting associate. Well, I haven't been a casting assistant on a project since I was a fellow. I never had that grace period of two or three years or five years of assistant work. And then you might roll up to an associate. That was what I was told was realistic when I was a fellow to anticipate that. And it just never materialized. And so on top of it, that's what I meant earlier when I said that I, had, I was like really transparent with the play on folks. Right, like, right. I hadn't had that. I hadn't gone through that. I'm sure many casting directors would have looked at that and thought, what are they thinking? hiring this person I sometimes wondered what were they thinking <laughs> hiring this person and so that pressure caught up to me and so the pandemic really sort of hit reset and then moving back to the Pacific Northwest where I can breathe a little bit easier these are all good things so there's that 
<laughs> there's that well yeah and i'm i mean i'm nodding a lot to a lot of what you're saying because i i'm very hard on myself and self-critical as well there is this um i think there is this deeply rooted fear sometimes that I have felt and other TGNC theater artists have confided in me that they have felt that if I screw this up, I might be ruining it for an entire community of people. If I happen to be the first non-binary actor, director, etc., that this company, this project, whatever is quote unquote taking a chance on and I provide something, anything less than pure excellence the entire time. Might I be screwing it up for anyone who comes after me who's in my community? And I think that's just, it's an unrealistic expectation that sometimes we can put on ourselves. But I think it's also, it's important to acknowledge it, that it exists, right? Mm -hmm. For some. It does for some. No, you're absolutely right. That was definitely woven into my experience as well, which is, again, sort of helped me get to this point where I'm at now where I just have to insist on being me first and whatever that means. I, you know, sometimes I think, I question myself, like, would I move back to New York and would I try and kind of like immerse myself again in that world and knowing what I know now, knowing what I know about myself now and like how to maybe better keep my temperament at bay so that it would ideally produce better work. I stop and I think about that. And then I just have this sort of resounding where I'm like, this is, that's, that's not going to change on that end necessarily. And again, I only have so much to live for. I only have so much life left to live. So what do I really want to do with that? You know what I want to do? I want to live wherever the hell I want to live because I like living there because it's pretty or because the air is cleaner or because there's mountains or I can ride a ferry boat to Vashon Island Mm -hmm. (laughs) or whatever that is. And that I could always go anywhere too. Like I might go live in Joshua Tree for a couple of years. It's cool down there. I feel like I'm on Mars when I'm in Joshua Tree. I'm going to (laughs) go live in San Francisco for a couple of years because I like those places. Because I'm happy when I'm wandering through the Castro. I'm happy when I'm like in the middle of Joshua Tree or in a, in a swimming pool for 12 hours in a day. This industry will continue to churn. New York will continue to be there. These opportunities will exist and I can probably find a way to like make that happen in some capacity. But do I really want to? Is it that important at the end of the day? And that's stuff that I think about a lot. Because as you were just talking about the community too, I think it comes back to that a lot of times where I go, well, I also think that there is something about being an activist and not giving up, constantly showing up to the front lines. And I don't want to let my peers down. Not that I feel like they're pressuring me in any sort of way. I don't think I have that kind of power, but I don't know. Can I also just mention, like, I just used the word power, that that's something that's been on my brain a lot, too, is power. I keep thinking that there are all these, not to get too deep into politics, I'm starting to think that we have so much power. (laughs) We are really powerful as a community. Like, look at how nervous we're making people. They're passing laws, like, every day to try and make it so that we're not as influential. Talk about the tipping point. I think one of the reasons why a lot of what's happened has happened is because it's like a snowball effect. None of this is new, really. Like, like as far as like the universe is, the cosmos, so none of this is new, but people are now aware of it. 
And more and more people are identifying or realizing that it is a part of themselves. And therefore, more and more people are realizing that it's a part of their communities by association in their workplaces, everywhere they look, their neighbors, maybe their partner, maybe their children. There's so much power that we actually have. What can we do with that power? That's something interesting that I think about sometimes. They want us to think that we don't. At the end of the day, I feel like there's this like, you're powerless. I always hear about how we're less than 1% or whatever bullshit. Then why are you so nervous? What are you nervous about? Yes, yes. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yes and yes. Yes and yes and yes and yes. I'm going to answer every question with some deep philosophical random thought that has no end to it. That's what's happening now. I think that's now. what podcasts should be. We need more nonlinear answers on podcasts. That's <laughs> that's going to be my platform for 2022. Can we talk yeah. about the piece that you wrote for American theater, Unicorn at a Soup Factory? At a Soup Factory <laughs> or in a Soup Factory? In a Soup Factory? In a Soup think- Factory. Can you talk about the the process of writing the piece and what the reaction was to it? American Theatre Magazine reached out to me because they were highlighting transgender, non-conforming, non-binary artists in the theatre industry for their December 2020, 2020? 2020 issue, yes. So at the end of summer that year or so, they reached out and asked if I'd be interested in talking about the experience of of um being a trans person and a casting director and amplifying and highlighting trans and non-binary gender non-conforming theater artists and the process of casting what people should know as they proceed to be more inclusive and thoughtful about creating spaces and, and providing opportunities for our community and my initial thought was like oh gosh I don't think that analytically like I don't know how to like do that like the bullet point essay you know what I right. mean like the persuasive essay top like, 10 things you, you should know. Yeah, exactly and I said that and they were like oh no no you don't have to do that whatever is unique to you so they were so helpful in like allowing me to be like this is what I can do what I need is a big lump of clay and I'm just gonna hack at it and it's gonna be whatever it is at the end of the day sort of like my answers to this interview <laughs> so, um and uh and that's art. And they were so, yeah, they were so, they were so helpful in sort of navigating me through this, what inevitably ended up being as is so much <laughs> what I do, deeply personal, deeply emotional, deeply cathartic process of writing up all, all of my feelings and, and thoughts on this matter and my own personal journey and like what I've learned and what I can, what I can bring. All I can bring to a lot of these conversations, right, is like authenticity, I suppose, you know, like in my casting work, like, well, I'm a trans person. There's the part of me that is a trans person and can speak to that. And there's the part of me that has done my research, which I think really anyone can do that research and how to engage with TG and C folks, which in many ways is is not very different than how you should and will and should engage with or could, excuse me, should, would, and could engage with anyone, right? But there, are, of course, are, yeah, you want to be cognizant of insensitive where and when needed. But again, like you would also be cognizant, you should be sensitive and thoughtful about how you communicate with anyone. This piece became very personal for me. It was the first time I really thought, I really had an opportunity to write out 
everything that I thought I, I had learned from my experience and would be helpful for people to be, I wanted people to be like aware of things that they might not otherwise be aware of. And the only way I could do that, I didn't want to speak for anyone else, right? So I thought, okay, just speak for myself here and talk about other experiences, but only as I interpreted it through observation. I couldn't, I didn't want to like change the narrative so that I was again speaking for somebody like, and so that's what I set out to do. And I think and hope at the end that I did. And it was a very positive experience. I look back at that and I am so happy that I had been asked to do that. It's been challenging for me to do others since I've had other opportunities to write and it's been way harder and I can't quite put my finger on why but it just has. So that was, I guess, just a good moment. Good timing. Yeah. yeah. And two quick, two pieces that I want to highlight that really stood out for me in the piece where you use this comparison of, you know, someone asking for an Audra McDonald type and breaking down, what does that mean? That you're an incredible singer, that you're very, you know, very swift with, with contemporary texts. I've not seen someone else break it down so succinctly in terms of you can't just treat the trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming community of theater artists as 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 monolith. I need one. I need one for this project. Okay, <laughs> cool. Like, why just one? And 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 what's the thinking around it? And how can we make sure that it's a space that they're coming into that they feel valued? And what are the actual attributes you're looking for in this character? I just it's worth it's well worth the read for anyone who has it will link to it in the episode description but then also this thing of TGNC actor coming up to you and saying it made all the difference for you to be in the room for you to be a part of it because I didn't feel alone which I think circles back to what you're talking about I mean it's a thread throughout this entire conversation that we're having like there's power in not feeling alone and I am going to make like the coolest segue ever into a final question now I hope we'll see it's a tight walk a tightrope that I am traversing. And so to that point of not feeling alone, I want to blend these two questions together and I don't know if I'll do it in a really articulate way, but I'm going to try. Can you sort of leave us with your thoughts on, we talked a little bit about this before, about a being considered perhaps a, a trans elder of, of having, being openly trans for over half your life. Like that's, amazing and I hope that society continues to realize the power that we have and and become more and more welcoming and then the other part of that is this kernel of an idea that I was talking about earlier about looking at works that we've seen creative works like the matrix is the entry point that I use where okay cool so now we know that this huge cultural this piece that impacted so many people culturally how do we view that in the context of the Wachowski sisters coming out as trans how do we view Hedwig and the angry inch with Stephen Trask coming out as non-binary how do we look at the body of Harvey Firestein's work with him exploring things about his gender and his latest memoir and and to sort of encapsulate what we were talking about a little bit before was this gosh our arms are wide and welcome for this community to become even larger and that was a non-linear question and maybe you'll have like a two-word answer or something we'll see can you just respond to that a bit yeah I can I and mean, I'll go back to um to the to the beginning of the to the beginning of your questions and on the subject of the piece um 
if I may, the yes, please. Uh, to start with my talking about how the type, the matter of type, I sort of loathe the concept of type. And I think it's Me maybe too. I mean, I do. And, and I know it's one of those terms that it's still on occasion will sneak out of me. And it's, I feel like I'm, I don't know how else to put it, but like at times I'll say it and I catch myself as if I misgendered something. Like I don't know what else to put it. Or I'm like, oh God, you know what I mean? Like, yep. I'm so sorry. I just said yes. tight. Um, and so, and I correct myself. And so <laughs> I, I just don't, I don't like it. And I think that it's something that we're taught, right? We're taught to think that in casting, I mean, it happens all the time, right? Like to box people into into these categories based on, a lot of times it's based on genetics, which is just so silly. It makes absolutely no sense. I can't tell you how many times I talk to folks who tell me that they went into an audition and everyone under the sun who could even remotely possibly connect to the TGNC community, like my cousin's trans as auditioning for this role, like that kind of thing where <laughs> it's just everyone and you're like, wait, what is this character? And I think it, it also does disservice in many ways too, because then it's like, well, what does that do to somebody who walks into the room who's prepared for this audition? And then they see that like, oh, is this really what they're, is this really what they want? Like it could really throw Somebody, this is not what you should be doing to actors when they walk into a waiting room mm. is making them go, oh my God, what am I actually auditioning for? What is this character? And so there's ways to be transparent about that in your invitation for them to, to come and audition. If you are like, in fact, and I have participated in these where you are working with a living author, a living playwright, and the character can really change and grow depending on who is cast. And this is an opportunity to have an audition and meet a bunch of people. Um, the character exists right now in the play as this, but like there really is a broader conversation that's desired based on who you audition. So like, and then a lot times I have found creative teams will be resistant to the amount of transparency one provides to the actors. And that's something that I really hope evolves as this conversation continues to grow is that the creative team, you hire a casting director and be really thoughtful when you hire a casting director. Trust them. And if they say, hire somebody you're going to trust. And when they say... I think that the letter should say this, the email that goes out that says, come in with this time, here are your sides, all of this, should be transparent about X, Y, and Z. I, I just don't see why that is, that has to be, we have to like shroud people in mystery about things right. to keep things, to keep your creative process under wraps or whatever. Like, I, I hate to say it, but stop being so precious. These people will forget the moment that they don't get the job if they don't get the job. You know, yeah. they're not going to suddenly then go like, ha ha, I know everything about this play and I'm going to go sell it to the press and your play will not be a success because everyone will have spoilers. Like, that's not how it works. So there's that. I, I, I can go on and on about type and I won't. But just to say that I, I kind of generally love it. And I think that people can and should just try harder. So there's that. I just also want to say that moment that I referenced in the article with the actor who had told me that my presence in, in the room, the audition room, was so special for them. It made the difference. I, I mean, I don't know how else to put it in a way it sort of gutted me. I'm glad, and I'm especially glad that there are now more trans 
and non-binary gender non-conforming casting professionals out there and directors and playwrights who are in these these audition rooms but it just pains me to think about how many times these people have gone in and and felt so alone in a moment that I would hope that they wouldn't feel alone um I will say that a lot of actors that I've had the pleasure of having come in for audition it's just so wonderful to see the little glow-ups the little glow-ups that are happening right now with actors who are getting the work that they're getting I do have hope I don't mean to sound so pessimistic all the time and I do have hope and I'm seeing a lot of wonderful things happen and it just makes me so happy so then to kind of segue into the question the more like direct questions that you asked you know I started transitioning in 2005 if I look back at how I navigated the spaces I was in up until 2005, for about two years prior to, I would say that I was already, the transition was very natural. I didn't have to change much of what I did. But I then suddenly had this like, there was a textbook example that existed that was easy to find that existed about trans people that I suddenly thought, oh, I guess that's what I have to do. And medically transitioning to be very specific what I thought I had to do. Otherwise, like, what am I if I don't do that? So I had like a plan to like, to go to Thailand and like, have gender affirming surgery and like started saving up money for it like there's all of this stuff that eventually I had this awareness oh wait do I want to do that or do I think I have to and when I it dawned on me that I was just thinking I had to that it wasn't natural I was like oh then I changed my plans again (laughs) and then I had a little bit of money and so I mean I came out the year that the movie Trans America came out and I saw the movie in the cinema like seven times Because even in all of its flaws and the punchlines and things like that at the expense of trans identities, I was just like, oh my God, this is a trans woman and she's, this is her story played by Felicity Huffman. But like, at that time, I didn't care. And it's not boys don't cry, right? Like, spoiler, she doesn't die at the end. I was all for it. I haven't watched it in years, but there's still this part of me that like remembers that, like that nostalgia that kind of flutters up inside of me when I think of that movie. I don't know if I could stomach it again, but there's just, that's something that's a part of my my past that was very special. And now here we are in 2022. Next month will be 17 years since I started transitioning, which is, wild when I think about it, that it's been that long. And I am so happy. I'm going to get emotional, but I'm so happy that there is a generation of people who are finding themselves who, um, I don't know, I suppose we'll just, they're finding themselves as they see themselves, hopefully everywhere. Um, and existing, coexisting everywhere and see allies. And I, I remember after I moved to Seattle, which was, which was right before I started transitioning, I moved to Seattle and a month later I started transitioning. And I asked the community, the acting community, I said something like, you know, I started asking around, like, are there any trans actors out here? And people were so lovely, but they were like, no, not, not that we know of at least. And so it feels like every city that I moved to, there's this moment of like, shit, <laughs> there's no one else who's doing this. And so it's just nice to, 
I guess now start to slowly move into this place in my life where I'm, I am trans elder of sorts, where my existence when I first started transitioning was the society was very different and how it talked about matters that pertain to trans people politically, socially, how I interacted with people, what it was like to look for jobs or community, or again, it wasn't until I moved to New York that it really dawned on me how much I had spent time trying to assimilate. Well, and as I just said, it's because I looked around and I asked, where are these people? And we was met with blank stares. And the only example I had of trans people to look up to were these people where like the most coveted were those who lived stealth and were considered passable. And I looked at my shoulders, my linebacker shoulders, and I thought, it'll never do that. My five o'clock shadow that I, I could never afford the makeup to cover it because I couldn't get a job. I'd feel the air get sucked out of the room trying to get a job at QFC, you know, because I walked in. I'm now on this other side of things and I'm watching people come out and yes, it's really hard right now really hard right now and it's terrible and terrifying sometimes to live to just live to just be trans to be gender non-conforming right now but i see more people and i hope that they see each other and i hope that they know and reach out to those people and i hope that they reach out to me if they see me i hope that they clock me (laughs) and that they speak to me and that they that we can do whatever we are meant to do to help each other through even if it's just seeing me even if it's just having me be on the other side of the table like whatever that is that means something to me and i hope i can always do that um as long as i live i hope i can always do that um so as i see other people in in context to like celebrities and these high profile figure elliot page for god's sakes you know, all these like cool, badass people who are making art and they're making art as trans people, as non-binary people, as, as gender non-conforming people, as queer people, as pansexual people, bisexual people. I mean, I'm also a queer person. I haven't even talked about that. Like on top of it all, like I am all over the umbrella, right? And so I sometimes say I'm trans and queer as fuck to the point that like you could see me from space. I'm so fucking trans and queer. Like, um... <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, I, uh, what can I say? Welcome. <laughs> and I, I'm excited to see what that means as far as what they create, because then it's like, oh, if we're talking about someone like Stephen Trask, Stephen Trask is non-binary. Everything Stephen Trask has ever done has been the, of the creation of a non-binary person. Every single thing they've ever done. And that's fucking cool. And now I'm excited to see what what else they'll do beyond that. And I hope for great things, whatever that is, even if, it, even if it's nothing, even if it's just living comfortably and, I don't know, having a dog or making good casseroles or none of that or all of that. I just want us to live and be happy and have community. And I really want to be able to do so in a world that gives us some grace and gives us a space to live and trusts us, just trust us. We know who we are. That's what I have to say about that. I, I'm the one getting emotional now. Um, there are no words other than thanks and I love you, Ada. Thank you for this incredible conversation. And just thank you for being you and um, 
here's to us all being happy and safe and trusted and uh, imbued with grace, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Wadzik. I love you so much. And I'm so grateful to know you. Thank you for having me here and for trusting me with this space to talk about myself and where I'm at right now in my life and how I feel about things. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This podcast is co-produced and engineered by Ray Catherine Morgan and distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers. 